0: can I just say as we begin, this is difficult, the stuff that's in here, but the purpose of this passage is to encourage us and to give us certainty and strength. That's the purpose. In fact, I would sum up uh, this passage by saying this. This passage is saying, don't be lazy listeners, but hold on to hope. So if you don't remember anything from tonight, that's how you understand Hebrews 6. Don't be lazy listeners, but hold on to hope. And at first glance, um, well, it seems a bit out of place. Last week in the book of Hebrews, we began looking at the priesthood of Jesus. We began trying to understand how does Jesus fulfill this Old Testament category called priesthood. And the author left us in chapter 5, verse 10 by mentioning the fact that Jesus is a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then if we look at the end of uh, the passage that we just read, chapter 6, verse 20, he comes back to this theme. He says, um, Jesus having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is this section doing right in the middle of him teaching us about Jesus priesthood. Well, this section's here basically for him to say to his readers and to us tonight, are you paying attention to what I'm saying? Are you listening to what I'm telling you about the priesthood of Jesus? Because this is not just some theological aside. This is absolutely fundamentally important. Are you listening to me? A good way of thinking of it is to, I don't know if you've ever had um, a fire safety talk at your work or at school or at uni. Uh, And sometimes when you're at these kind of talks, you can just sort of zone out uh, and not really pay attention. But actually, what the firemen are doing when they're up and they're giving these talks is talking about something really important. Uh, So sometimes they'll employ shock tactics to make sure That you're listening so they'll be up there and then behind their back they'll have a foghorn and they'll be giving this talk about fire safety and suddenly they'll press the foghorn and everyone's got to get up and run out quickly because that's how quick a fire could strike and that's what the the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage this is like his foghorn passage in which he says listen to me this is really really important I was telling somebody this morning about this as an illustration and they were saying to me, oh, you should go and buy a foghorn and do it. Um, but I bottled it. I didn't have the bottle. and I didn't think it would be fair to those listening online to have a sudden blast of a foghorn. Um, so that's, that's his foghorn passage to us. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? So there are three reasons I think he brings up why this stuff that he's been talking about, the priesthood of Jesus, Three reasons why the Hebrew listeners and why we today need to listen to what he's saying. I've got them on the back of your service sheet there. Three reasons to listen about, three reasons why the Hebrew Christians, sorry, need to grasp what the author is saying about Jesus' priesthood. First reason, they have become sluggish listeners and they need to mature spiritually. So that's the first reason he gives, why they need to listen to what he's saying about the priesthood, because they have become sluggish listeners, and they need to mature spiritually. We see that in chapter 5, verse 11, through to chapter 6, verse 3. Verse 11, he says, about this, that is about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing, Now, that word in uh, Greek translated dull of hearing, it's the same word that he uses later on in chapter 6, verse 12, which is translated there as sluggish. Uh, Sluggish is a much better translation. It's a much better word to say sluggish. That's what the Hebrew Christians have become like. They're lazy listeners. So the author of Hebrews, he's taking this aside In his discourse on Jesus' priestly role to say, look, I want to say more to you, but the problem is, you're not bothering to listen to me. You're not bothering to take in what I'm trying to say. It's not that what he is saying is difficult to understand. That's not the problem. The problem is that they're being too lazy. They're not unable to learn. They're unwilling to learn. They're coming along, they're hearing the sermons, they're hearing whoever this author is, they're hearing him speak and his friends talk about Jesus. They're hearing it, but it's not going in. It's just going in one ear and out the other. They're sluggish and they're listening. And these are people who have been Christians for a long time. Fair enough, he says, fair enough, it would be if you just become a Christian. And all this stuff would seem quite complicated. It's a bit intense, talking about Jesus' priesthood and the order of Melchizedek. Fair enough if you didn't get it then. But they've been Christians for a long time. In fact, verse 2, by this time, they should be teachers themselves. Doesn't mean that they should be up the front here doing what, what I'm doing now. It doesn't mean that they're all preachers. But they should have a clear enough grasp of Christianity that when a younger Christian comes up to them, and questions them about why, why isn't there a priesthood in this Christian faith. They should be able to teach them and to tell them. But they're not like that. And he illustrates what they're like, verse 13 to 14. He illustrates it by saying that they are like uh, newborn spiritual babies. They're still on the liquids. They've not moved onto solid food. They're not developing. They're not growing in their doctrine and their understanding. It's a great illustration. Uh, if you came in here on Sunday morning and you saw a baby drinking from a bottle, um, then you wouldn't bat an eyelid. That's normal. That's what babies do. But if you invited me round for lunch... Uh, and I declined the roast beef and took out a bottle and started drinking from it. That would be pretty weird. that would be uh, an unusual thing, and something that 's not right and i 've got a funny image in my head of what that would be like, and that 's what he 's saying these Christians are like it 's like what are you doing you 've been Christians for ages, and you 're still on the spiritual milk why aren 't you maturing why aren 't you on solid food by now it 's strange in fact it 's beyond strange it 's really, really dangerous. You're not developing. You're not growing. And what's their spiritual milk? Well, it's described in chapter 6, verse 1, as elementary doctrines. This is what they know and they haven't developed. Just look at the the list there that he, he puts down. Repentance of dead works and of faith towards God. Instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That's what the Hebrew Christians believe just now. But they are elementary doctrines. They are basic, fundamental stuff. And if you look at that list, just look at it. What's missing there? This is the basics of Christianity. What's missing in that list? Well, Jesus is. That's the point the author's making. Remember, the author to the Hebrews, he is writing to Christians who have converted from Judaism. So Christians who who had converted from Judaism, they were surrounded uh, by Jewish people, Jewish friends, Jewish family members, and they had converted to Christianity. And these elementary doctrines, if you were to look at these doctrines, doctrines and you were to present them to a Jewish person, there's nothing in there that a Jewish person would disagree with. This is exactly What Jewish people would have agreed with. This is exactly what they would have understood. But the Hebrew Christians are being lazy and sluggish in their hearing because they're not willing to develop that into seeing how this helps them to understand about Jesus. That's why the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus. Taking these foundational Old Testament ideas and he builds upon them to show how Jesus is the better fulfillment of all of that. Notice what the author says in 6 verse 1, these elementary doctrines. He doesn't say you abandon these basics and then you move on from them. So there's not kind of doctrine or an understanding you get when you first become a Christian and then when you move on to the solid foods, when you develop, you you put aside these doctrines and then you go on uh, to something much more complicated. That's not what he says. But he says that these are the foundation. And what you do with a foundation is you build upon it. You don't leave it behind, but you build upon these foundations. That's why he's been telling them about Jesus' priesthood. He's building upon that foundation of what they already know and showing how Jesus fulfills it. Don't be sluggish. Don't be spiritually immature. And if you want to move, if you want to grow, you need to listen. You need to listen to God's word. Sluggish listening. It's a really hard thing to spot. That's why we kind of need this foghorn of a passage to go off, because it's quite hard for us to see actually how are we being sluggish. But think about it like this. Uh, Just a few questions to think about. How how do you listen to a sermon on a Sunday? So when you come to church, when you come to hear sermons, do you come basically, well, because that's just the thing you do. It's just part of the routine. Uh, Do you come to hear Good rhetoric and be entertained? Probably not, but uh, do you come for that reason? Or do you come to hear God's word with the expectancy to be changed and challenged by it? Uh, Robin mentioned this morning about our quiet times as well, we're spending time in God's word each day. Uh, It's very difficult to maintain a pattern of that, it's very easy to slip away from doing that, But it can get to a point where you just kind of stop doing it. And you almost, to be honest, you would never say this, but to be honest, you just can't be bothered. You just can't be bothered getting up. just can't be bothered to spend time in God's word. Think about, like, even when we come to difficult passages in the Bible. Like, think about when we come to the passage about Jesus' priesthood, or when we come next week to a Melchizedek. I feel I put Neil in it last week, so I'm going to try and bring him back in and set him up for next week. Think about when we come to that difficult passage next week. Is the mentality going to be, oh, it's just too complicated. I can't understand this. Or actually, are we going to strive to learn? to Actually, this is important. God's told us this for a reason. Maybe we should listen. It was encouraging to hear this morning that uh, Robin was saying that about Romans 8. It's difficult. It's a really difficult passage. It's not as difficult as Hebrews 6, but it's still difficult. Um, And it was encouraging for him and and for us as a staff team to have people in this congregation coming up afterwards and asking him these questions about the passage. That's a good sign. That's a sign of not being sluggish, but of really trying to wrestle with this, trying to understand, trying to listen to what God is saying to us. This is not about being smart or intellectual. It's not what this is about at all. You can know all the complex theology. You can know how all these doctrines work and still be sluggish and spiritually immature. It's not a matter of intellect. This is a matter of attitude to God's word. Here's two questions. I've been meditating a lot a lot on this passage. Here's two questions, I think, because we're going to see in a minute. Lazy listening could be fatal to you as a Christian. It could kill you. So here's two questions. Jot these down. Write them down if you've got pen and paper or a phone. Or if you don't have that, try and keep them in your head. But just think about how you would answer these questions. First question. How has my understanding of Jesus developed over the past few years? So if you've been a Christian for a while, how has my understanding of Jesus developed? Am I more aware of of his majesty, of his love, of his grace, of his judgment? How, How has my understanding of him developed? Second question, what am I going to do to develop my understanding of Jesus? Two questions, and just think about how you would answer those questions. And if there's nothing really you can say, maybe that's a bit worrying. If you're starting to get bored with Jesus, starting to get bored with the gospel, and are not making any effort to know him better, it could be bad. In fact, it could mean that you're dying. And that's the second point. Why why do these Hebrew Christians need to listen to what he's saying about Jesus' priesthood? Point number two, they need to take heed because they could be in danger of falling away completely. I, I have really struggled <laughs> with these verses this week. I really have. And I've been so tempted. My big temptation with this is to really soften the blow of what is being said in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6. To really soften it. And the thing that makes it shocking, these verses, what, what's shocking is in verse 4 to 6 could be a description of a member of this church. It could be. Could be. And I said at the start, you know, the main point of this text is to strengthen us, but sometimes we need to be shaken a little before we can be strengthened. This could be somebody at Chalmers Church tonight. Think again of that, of the fire safety demonstration. Sometimes when they're doing these talks, they'll have a PowerPoint, uh, and they'll be going through all these uh, important information about fire safety. uh, And when they see people starting to zone out, they'll put up suddenly on the picture, uh, up up on the screen, sorry, a picture of, you know, a, a, a charred corpse. And it's shocking, and it's meant to shock people. And it's almost as if they're saying, look, what we're saying is so serious. That could be you. You need to pay attention. And the author of Hebrews puts forward this picture of somebody who falls away from the gospel completely to say, that could be you. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Now before, I I want to look at this in detail. It's, It's difficult. I want to work at this. But before we do this, let me just say this statement. This passage does not teach, and the Bible does not teach, that someone who, as a born again Christian, could lose their salvation? The New Testament's crystal clear on that. If you doubt it, look at Romans 8. Look at the end of Romans 8. Look at John 10, 27 to 28. Crystal clear. And I think the book of Hebrews would say that. Turn with me forward just to Hebrews 10. I think this will just help us as we come back and look at this difficult passage. Hebrews 10, it's on page uh, 1000 and six just from verse 12 uh, this is what the author of hebrews says he says but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, notice this. Jesus Christ offers a sacrifice for all time that is absolutely and completely sufficient for sin. And verse 14, when Jesus died, he perfected his people. It doesn't say that his death will perfect them if they get sanctified. It says that his death has perfected those who are being sanctified. It's done and it's eternal. Jesus Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So Jesus will get those who are truly his through to their end goal. He will. But one of the hallmarks of somebody who really is a genuine follower of Jesus is that they persevere. We call this doctrine... Uh, the perseverance of the saints. It's a wonderful truth that those who persevere with Christ will be with Christ. They work hard. They're not sluggish. Now I turn back to Hebrews 6. Let's look at this person described in verse 46. I would say that this person, and this is helpful for looking at it, is someone who has experienced the external blessings of the Holy Spirit but has not experienced the internal blessings transformation of the Holy Spirit. So they've experienced the external blessings, but not the internal transformation. So this is someone who, first of all, is enlightened. See that? This is someone who's enlightened. They know the scripture well. That means they, they, they know it. They know the gospel. They know how the gospel works. Secondly, they have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. In other words, they have felt the conviction of sin, That the Holy Spirit brings. They've been part of the community. Of the Spirit. The church. And seen the blessings that come through that. They've tasted thirdly. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. So they've enjoyed their Bible teaching. They've been to cord. They've been to focus. They've been to house group. They've been to two evening services. They've enjoyed it. They felt they've got something from it. They've listened to the word of God. Fourthly. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. And I think this is a reference for, for those at the time this letter was written, who had witnessed some of the, uh, the miraculous signs and wonders uh, that the apostles had done. Uh, but we could just apply it to simply those who have witnessed the great things that have been done through the church of Christ. This person, look at that description This person, by all intents and purposes, looks like a good, solid, genuine believer of Jesus Christ. You would not be able to spot this person in the church. But they drifted away, and he says they have fallen away completely. Now, we need to be clear about this. To fall away is not to fall into some terrible sin. Forgiveness is available for that. But they have fallen away from Christ completely. It's not that that these people have experienced doubt or or anxiety or have backslidden. It's a clear rejection of Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 6, they crucify the Son of God to their shame once again, and they hold him up to contempt. They've gone amongst the crowds who scoffed and who killed Jesus. Gone back to that. I'm not going to soften the blow of this one. In verse 4, it's actually in the Greek, it's emphatically written, it is impossible for that person to come back to repentance. It is impossible for that person to be restored to repentance. There is such thing as a point of no return. Jesus calls it the unforgivable sin. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount as well where he talks about there will be those at the end of time who say to him, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? And Jesus will say those devastating words to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. It's not that these people want to repent and God's refusing them. It's that they themselves actually don't want to repent. They've not got to that point. They, they, they won't get to the point where they want to repent. Now, in this context, this was Christians who had gone back to Judaism. They started to ignore all that important stuff that the author's been telling us about how Jesus' fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. They started to ignore that, and slowly they gave into the pressures round about them and returned back to Judaism sounds strange to us today, I guess, but we've got to remember, at the time this was written, Judaism was the mainstream religion. It's what everyone was doing. Christians were weird and unusual. That's still the case, but they were surrounded by all these Jewish people. Christianity was seen as this kind of weird, unusual cult. And people were saying to these Christians, what what are you doing? You don't even have a priest. You don't even have a temple. Why do not you come back to us? And out of shame and out of pressure, they gradually stopped listening to all that important stuff about Jesus' priesthood, became sluggish, and then slowly but surely forsook him altogether. And for us today, I guess it's not Judaism that there's the pressure to drift back to. But it's just, I get, whatever worldviews culturally more acceptable, so that could be. It could be drifting back into secularism. It could be drifting back into to atheism or even agnosticism or materialism. I think, actually, more often than not, it's a drifting into liberalism. Liberal Christianity is all about forsaking the Jesus of the Bible to adopt a, a Jesus that is more culturally palatable. And I. You know, when you read these verses, I know some of you here tonight will have friends and family who were once strong in the faith and they've just drifted away. And this is scary stuff. But look, it's not for us to say whether they've reached the point of no return or not. That, that's not the point of this passage so that we can hold it up and think, well, who is this amongst us? That's not why he's telling us. The truth is we don't know who this could be. Uh, The author himself, if you look at verse 9, the author himself, he he doesn't actually think that this is going to be the Hebrew Christians. Uh, So in verse 9 of um, chapter 6, he says, um, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So he doesn't think it's them, because verse 10, they have signs of, of those who really are saved. They look out for the saints. They serve them in Christ's name. So he's saying this could not be you, it might be you, but but we're sure of better things. Why, why give them the warning then? Why does he mention this person? Because it could be them, it could be them, if they're not careful. He wants them to look at themselves, not to look at others and think who this is, but to look at yourself and to think this could be me, so make sure it's not you, how can we know well if we're in danger of this? Well, look at the illustration he gives us in verse 7 to 8. It's a really helpful illustration. He talks about two soils, so two kind of, kinds of land. Both would look the same. Both would receive the same blessings. The rain falls on both lands, on both soils. What's this rain? Well, I think the rain is, is the blessings described in verse 4 to 5, that the blessings that, that God pours out. On people. The soil of verse 7 takes those blessings and they take those blessings in and they let themselves be changed by those blessings. They grow in their knowledge and their understanding of Jesus. They produce fruit. They change in their godliness. The soil in verse 8 gets the same blessings, but nothing's happening. Oh, externally, it looks good, but nothing's taking root. They are spiritually waterproof to the blessings of God. Sluggishness. And it leads to producing thistles and thorns. And look at the judgment that it describes. This is serious. This is why he's taking this aside, because it's really serious. They are destined for the final judgment of God near to being cursed and the end is to be burned we we need to take this warning seriously and if you're thinking about applying it to others that, that's worrying but if you're looking at yourself and you are shaken by it i think that's a good sign it's really good dick lucas uh, who's a minister in london we often quote um he uh, he talks about, he kind of uses this passage to slate Christian bookshops, which is pretty funny, but he he talks about how um, what you get often in these Christian bookshops is these promise boxes um, in which you open them. My mum had them. It was actually really nice. You'd open them and you'd get a reader promise from the Bible. And it's really helpful to know these promises. But he says that he wants to um, manufacture warning boxes. So as well as the promise boxes, we get all the warnings that are contained in the New Testament. I think that's a great idea. Get up in the morning, open up, read your little warning, uh, be careful lest there be any amongst you who has an evil, uh, sinful heart. And then that's you ready for the day. Um, Because that... (laughs) that's what you need. You need the warnings as well as the promises. We're going to look at the promise. He's going to tell us some amazing promises from scripture and how they can give us certainty, but you need the warning. You need the warning because it causes you to look at yourself and think, is this going to be me? What can I do to stop this? being me? What can I do to strive to grow, to listen to God, to produce fruit? fruit? Fruit's not an instant thing. It's a great metaphor for change in the Bible because fruit's a gradual thing that over time there is this gradual change. But we should look at a warning like this, take it seriously, and do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine yourself to make sure you're not being sluggish. Examine yourself to make sure you aren't being fruitless and drifting slowly and slowly away from Jesus. And you know what? When we take heed to a warning like this, it will not make us insecure in our faith, but it will drive us to a place where we can feel totally secure. And that is Jesus Christ. This passage is not there to make us worried so that we'll lie awake tonight thinking, oh my goodness, am I in? Am I not in? Am I in? Am I not in? But, but it's there so that we'll fight off sluggishness and yearn for the assurance of hope that Jesus Christ brings. That's what he says, verse 11 to 12. If you've got your own Bible, don't do this in the church Bibles, you've got your own Bible and you like to highlight stuff, verse 11 to 12, that's the main verses. That's the verses that sum up what this entire passage is about. We desire, he says, that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So why do they need to listen to what he's saying about the priesthood? Because they're spiritually immature and they need to grow firstly. Firstly, Secondly, they need to take heed because they could be in real danger. And thirdly, and finally, they need to listen to what he's telling them because they need a strong assurance so they can press on towards that promised hope. Verse 13 to 20 are a description of a promise. You know, he uses Abraham as the example of somebody who waited patiently for the promise of God. And verses thirteen to twenty are a description of the promise that God made to Abraham. And our author wants his readers to not be sluggish, but to imitate those who through patience pressed on to that promise. Now you could, have, you, could think, well, you could have just picked any promise in the Old Testament. This is not just a random promise that he's picked. This is the promise given way back in the book of Genesis. It's a foundational promise about God's plan to save us, to save us from our sin, to redeem humanity, to make a people out of this man Abraham that will be his own people. See, if you are striving for spiritual maturity, yearning for more of Christ, if you're that soil that is soaking in the rain of God's Word, then you are an heir to this promise. And it's an unshakable foundation to be upon. Verse four to eight may have left you feeling a bit shaky, and that's a good thing it should do. But, but look at the words he uses now in this section. Just look, looking through those verses, he uses words like guaranteed, unchangeable, a refuge, strong, encouragement, sure, steadfast, anchor for the soul. If you are an heir to God's promise, then you are in the safest hands possible. Just to make sure we realize that God swore an oath on himself. God made the promise, so it's pretty sure if God makes it. And just to make sure that we would know the certainty of it, he swore on himself. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable characters of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So two unchangeable things, the promise of God and the oath that God swore. There is nothing that could be more certain. God's gone out of his way to show us how sure and certain that promise is. In fact, um, the author talks about in verse 18, for it is impossible for God to lie. It's the same word that he uses way back in chapter 6 verse 4 about those It was impossible for them to come back. It's impossible as well for God to lie. If you're on God's promise, then you are in a sure and certain spot because it is impossible for God to lie. And God did that. Why did he do that? Verse 18, so that we could have a strong encouragement, so that we who fled to him for refuge could know we are in a safe spot. You see, the more you draw nearer to Christ, that's what he's trying to do all the time in Hebrews. He's trying to say, come to Jesus. Keep going, don't go back, keep going, but come towards Jesus. And it's the attractiveness of Jesus as well as the the harshness of the warnings of judgment that he uses. Go to Jesus, and the more you come to him, the more safe you will feel. Verse 19 is just a wonderful verse. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do You see what he's saying? We can be certain that we will inherit this promise because our assurance is tied in with Jesus. It's all linked in to knowing Jesus as the high priest. He's a great author, a great writer. He masterfully brings us back onto the subject of Jesus' priesthood. You see, as a priest, we were saying last week, the Old Testament priests were there to represent the bridge between humanity and God. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the bridge between humanity and God. He has journeyed behind the curtain, that's temple language, that was the holy place. He has journeyed into heaven itself. And not only that, he has created access for us to go there so that those of us who follow him will follow in his wake. Where he is, there we shall be also. God made a promise, and it's fulfilled in Christ. He is our anchor. It's such a great metaphor The the anchor metaphor, if you think about, I mean, think about what makes an anchor good. Firstly, it has to be be attached to you in some way if you're in a boat. And secondly, the anchor has to be in a place where you can't go, you know, be at the bottom of a lake, and it's there to keep us steady in the water. We are bound to Christ, our great high priest who has led the way into heaven for us. And he is in that place that we aren't yet, but we will be. Jesus, right now, right now, as we are speaking, Jesus Christ is there at the right hand of God the Father, in flesh and blood, standing there, our high priest, waiting for us. We are bound to him. Where he is, there we will be. He is sitting there, guaranteeing our inheritance. It's like us having an invisible rope bound to heaven. So no matter what life's storms may throw at us, no matter uh, what pressures or, or temptations or sufferings or trials or pains or difficulties, that rope remains because it is bound to Christ. It is bound to our priest who is there right now at the right hand of God the Father, alive. If you've heard me preach at Chalmers, you'll have heard me say this quote from Martin Luther. And I don't apologize because it's great. He says that when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. God has sworn by himself that if I follow his son, I will be where his son is. Sin, death, hell cannot undo the promise of God. If you have no anchor to Jesus, you will be swept away. So keep the rope bound to him. You may be here tonight, you may not be a Christian, you may be thinking, wow, this is pretty intense stuff. And it is, because it's really that serious. If you've got no anchor for your soul, you'll have nothing in life that will be able to sustain you and you'll eventually be swept away for all eternity. He is the only thing that is sure, that is certain, that is unchanging. And he is right there, right now in heaven. We will follow in his wake. So don't be lazy, don't be sluggish, but hold on to the promised hope. That's the whole point of this section. Pay attention, says the author of Hebrews. This is serious This is serious stuff. You need to learn about Jesus because you need to have a bigger picture of Jesus. You need to develop your doctrine of Jesus. You need to mature in him. You need to be warned of turning away from him and you need to root your assurance into him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you you for this passage, this foghorn of a passage that rouses us up and... Lord, sometimes we are just far too, we get overly comfortable and we need to be shaken. We need to realize that what the author of Hebrews is talking about is serious, that we could be in real danger of drifting away. Father, many of us here tonight are sluggish and lazy listeners. And we feel convicted of that and help us, Father, then to be attentive, to do what we can to learn more about Jesus to grow in our knowledge and in our understanding of him. Help us to be that good soil that soaks up the blessings that you pour out on us. Help us to be changed and challenged by your words, not passive to it, but to really listen. Father, help us to be taking these warnings seriously. And Lord, help us to root our assurance in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he's the anchor for our soul that we need, that there's nothing else. And so may we push aside all those things that are distracting us, that are holding us back, and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, may we understand what it means to follow in his wake, to be tied to him, to know that where he is, there we shall be also. And may that give us the motivation to persevere and to listen well And so be heirs of that promise that you made so long ago to Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.